My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. So, it's just about winter. The World Cup is being played in the Middle East, and everything is going just fine. Right, President of FIFA? Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. In case you don't care about soccer, or even sports, you may not be aware that the premier sporting event, arguably in the entire world, is being played in a country where same-sex relations are illegal and where construction of the facilities for those games is best known for the thousands of migrant workers who have died building them. And that press conference was Gianni Infantino's attempt to get out ahead of all of that. Later on, beer was banned in stadiums, and it was announced that any team captain who wore a rainbow armband to support 2S LGBTQ rights would receive an automatic yellow card. Not great. There are a host of problems with the host nation. And in the middle of all this, for the first time in more than three decades, is a Team Canada. Has waited for the Kings of the North. They've done it. Canada is going to the World Cup. How should soccer fans feel about this World Cup? What about the long-suffering, die-hard Canadian soccer fans who want to savor this moment? What about the world in general? The billions of people being asked to overlook all sorts of ugly to enjoy the beautiful game. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Donovan Bennett of Sportsnet is our favorite person to discuss the intersection of politics and sports with, and he has a new show on which he does exactly that. It's called Going Deep. If you listen to the radio, you can hear it at 11 a.m. weekdays in Ontario on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. But for the purposes of this show, it's also a podcast that you can listen to wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Donovan. Hey, Jordan. How are you? I'm doing really well, and uh, just so you know, in the intro to this episode, we heard FIFA President Gianni Infantino tell us that he feels gay and he feels like migrant workers. And for those listeners who have perhaps not been paying attention to the World Cup, can you explain what the heck he was attempting to do in that speech? I don't know if anybody 
can. He did his best Kyrie Irving impersonation of yeah. just blaming everybody but himself. It was bizarre. So for the listener who's not used to what these speeches are, the beginning of every major tournament, uh, the FIFA president has an address to the media. It's generally opening remarks that span anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes. You do the things, you talk about how you're growing the game, you're excited for the new tournament, you thank the organizing committee and the host nation, you maybe sprinkle some pleasantries about how happy you are to be in said country. Gianni Infantino started with an hour-long monologue in which, as you mentioned, he was all the things. He just said, hey, I'm... I'm gay, evidently, and I'm disabled, and I'm a migrant worker. As if these are just masks that you can put on for fun. Uh, I, I, I don't think you, as a rich European man in your 50s, can equate to the atrocities that have happened to many of the people that you mentioned, because four decades ago, you were bullied at school because of the color of your hair. Like, I, I'm not sure exactly what the discrimination conversion chart looks like, but I'm almost certain that that does not equate what it's like to, I don't know, let's just pull names from a hat. Be a migrant worker whose passport is stolen, whose contract is breached, who works for, at best, $1.25 an hour in the richest country in the world, or, I don't know, maybe one of the members of the 2S LGBTQ community in said country who their prize for coming out, being stoned to death. So I'm not sure about how you equate uh, personal uh, prosecution, but those aren't the same, yeah. Mr. Infantino. And so next time you say, I feel African, Try to go to the bank and get a loan and see how African you feel at that point. I was reading some of the sub-tweets and quotes coming out of the press conference to my wife, and she was like, well, that, that's not real. Right. Like She just assumed that Twitter has no verification anymore and forget about ball sack sports. People are just impersonating journalists at this press conference and making things up to showcase how ridiculous FIFA is. It's like, no, no, no. This is verbatim. This is real. Wow. He, this is why we can't have nice things, evidently, Jordan. Yeah, well, you touched on it. Um, you touched on, well, I guess, uh, I guess Mr. Infantino touched on it in his own way. But there are a lot of issues around this World Cup being played in Qatar. Maybe briefly summarize why the world, not just, you know, sports journalists or uh, fans of the game, are concerned about this tournament. Well, and I think it's important to note, the, although most of the world, certainly you know, Europe and the Western world is concerned, Arab journalists in the room after his sermon applauded. Hmm. So people are looking at the games being in uh, Qatar in the first place through very different lenses. And I think the biggest thing that has struck me is essentially this is worlds colliding in terms of what is and isn't acceptable and what the rules of engagement are. And that's why I think all of this was difficult to reconcile for FIFA because they're trying to, in a way, 
serve two masters. They're trying to say we are inclusive and we are progressive and we stand for all of these positive ideals, but yet also take money from an authoritarian regime who doesn't actually believe in free speech. Uh, so, so that's why this has been awkward. But there's, there's multiple controversies in terms of how the games got here. We're talking about a country with no soccer tradition. That is essentially smaller than the province of Nova Scotia. So how did they get these games, you ask? Well, the Sunday Times has done some reporting, and they got it based off of widespread corruption and bidding in the process that led to outright bribery of voters. The Guardian has, has done lots of research and, and reporting on this, as has the, the New York Times. People have gone to jail uh, because of the racketeering that went on in this case. So it, it is an, an open and shut case to the point their former FIFA president, Sepp Blatter, who was in charge at the time, said that it was a mistake. I was like, well, yeah, n- no kidding. Uh, Sepp, this is what happens uh, when you run a sports organization like a crime syndicate. It's funny that that's the least troubling thing that's probably in your notes right now. It, it, it factually is is the least troubling. Uh, but it's, it's, it, it's part of the reason why it's the least troubling is because it's not new. When they announced Qatar as a host, they announced Russia at the same time. And so these are two nations, again, authoritarian regimes run by essentially dictators with you know, lots of money because of you know oil and gas deposits within the nation that are looking to launder their reputation in the world stage. The difference, though, is that Russia had the infrastructure. Right. They hosted Olympics. They've hosted major tournaments in the past. They have major soccer organizations within the country. Uh, Qatar didn't. So what does that mean? That means that in order to have the World Cups, you need, I don't know, eight new stadiums, that didn't exist. You had to build a, literally a new city that didn't exist. All of this infrastructure, and you're talking about in the summer when the World Cup normally is, temperatures that are you know around 122 degrees, not what you want to put some of the world's best athletes in. Mm-hmm. So what that means is you have to, one, move the tournament, which is why it's being played in November, off schedule for the first time ever. But two, you're going to have to ask migrant workers to build these stadiums for you in the summer many of which died. Uh, at, at least 6,500 from Asian countries uh, as, uh, alone, and that's not including the, the toll from North African workers who also helped. It, it, we're looking at 1.2 to 2 million fans coming to a country that is 300,000 citizens. How do you get ready in time to have an infrastructure for that to make place, you have to fast track it. And so they spent $220 billion with a B, 15 times more than the next most expensive World Cup to get ready. But the human cost was, as I said, migrant workers who went there often for the thought of creating a better life for their family because there was work, there was vacancy. But when they got there, their passports were stolen, their contracts were ripped up. They were staying in terrible uh, quarters. A lot of this in the height of COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were asked to work in oppressively hot temperatures. And, and, and when many of them died, uh, their bodies weren't sent back home to uh, uh, their loved ones. There was no cause of death given because this is not an area where autopsies are a thing that is felt to be needed. And so they were essentially just lost for a cause of making a few powerful men more 
rich. So that's why lots of people said this is not a country fit to host the World Cup because you don't have the infrastructure and the way you're going to do it isn't acceptable in most areas of the world. But here we are. So given all that, and this is going to sound like an awkward transition. It's not intended to be. There's no other way to discuss this. For Canada, though, I feel like this is the best and worst that it's going to get. I mean, the circumstances around this tournament are are as horrible as you've just described. But Canada has been trying to do this for decades. This is the culmination of everything they've worked for. It is. And I, I, one, feel bad for for the players who just want to live out their dreams and compete at a high level and now are forced to answer you know, geopolitical uh, and human rights questions. I do think, because it's, it's not our fault as fans, we didn't take any money, we didn't vote, we certainly didn't steal someone's passport and treat them like a modern-day slave. I do think we can be passionate and cheer and understand that this team, although exciting, also represents the best of us. A team where the starting 11 essentially is exclusively first and second generation Canadians from the West Indies, from Africa, from, from Europe, from the Middle East. Like I think that that is something to be proud of because we are uh, a nation of people from elsewhere who, when we work together, can achieve amazing things. And I think that is a great light. But I do think there is more that we can do. We can, you know, write to our national sports organizations or to our MPs and say, well, this isn't right. We call ourselves a progressive country. There are many countries where their soccer federation is on the record. Progressive countries, UN countries, United States, Belgium, England, the Netherlands, Germany, who have all said, what's happening here is not okay. It's not right. We want to put pressure on FIFA to at the very least make some of those migrant workers whole. Create a fund, given that you are now making a billion in revenue more than you ever have at a World Cup. Create a fund for those families. That's the least you can do retroactively Mm -hmm. as uh, someone who's benefiting off of this. The least you can do is make a strong stance, not to tell you know, the people in Qatar, how they should live or what their, you know, morals should be, but to make a strong stand that you support the 2S LGBTQ community and these are ways that you are going to make that stand, even though you're in a country where that might not be the case. Those are things that that you can do as a soccer fan uh, because quite frankly, what has been sad, maybe even shameful for, to me, is that Canada soccer, the CSA, has been quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Human Rights Watch has reached out to them six times via letter, has not had a response. Amnesty International uh, has been very critical of Canada soccer's inaction. They've released a, a, a promo, a trailer about Canada soccer being in the World Cup. And in it, I quote, our strength is not in our numbers, it's in our unity, a place where everyone belongs. Our ambition only rises. Well, Don't sing it, bring it. Show us where you are in terms of uh, pushing FIFA or at least making a stance. And it is very easy for you to put pride uniforms on the women's national team because by and large, half of the team and support staff is 
uh, part of the 2SLGBTQ community. But I don't see those pride uniforms on the men's national team. They were one of the countries who did not step up and say, our captain will wear a One Love armband with a pride rainbow on it. And so I, I do think we can consume the tournament and not feel guilty about it. But I do think we do have a right a role to play in pushing uh, for some conversation and for some change. I wish that the CSA would be on the front foot the way that U.S. soccer and the FA in England and and others have. I'm I'm really, really disappointed that, that we aren't. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Given all of the stuff we talked about in the lead up to the tournament and and how corrupt it is and and how horrible the conditions under which the stadiums were built are. What's happened since the tournament has started? You mentioned uh, One Love armbands. I understand there's been a bit of cracking down on journalists. Uh, Beer sales, gank, like it seems like there's a not a great energy to what's been happening so far. Every time I open up the Twitter app, it seems, for as long as I'll be able to continue to do that. Right. There is another controversy around uh, this World Cup. Fans haven't had great accommodations or a great experience. They've had trouble getting in and out of stadiums. And again, uh, we're talking about the infrastructure, a lack thereof, of hosting uh, an event this size. The Beer Gardens, and Budweiser is a major sponsor. They paid $75 million to be the alcohol partner of, of the World Cup. The beer tents that were supposed to be around each stadium were moved a little bit farther from uh, the gates to get in because the Qatari government was not comfortable uh, with where they were. And then all of a sudden, you know, on the eve of the tournament, they were gotten rid of altogether. And I'm not saying that the government should change their ideals on on what they want in their country. And there's some thought that, only alcohol will be consumed in the hotels. That's the only uh, respectable area or venue for them uh, in the country. But this is this is not a surprise. I mean, this is not new. We've had 12 years to get ready for this. This could have been handled in a much better way, you know, by all parties. You know, Budweiser, although I'm sure they could say this is breach of contract, is not going to walk away because one, I just said Budweiser four times on your show, so this is free promo. Right. Two. The next World Cup is in North America, where they have uh, you know great dealings and, and want great marketing. So they're not exactly going to say, "Well, this is it, FIFA," because you know beer gardens will be welcomed uh, in the United States and in Canada and certainly in Mexico. In terms of the One Love armbands, all of uh, you know the nations that I, I mentioned earlier—England, Wales, etc.—were prepared to wear this One Love armband. Uh, you know, seven European nations as a show of support. They've worn it before in the Nations League. This is not new. And on the eve of, of the first game, FIFA has said that if you know any player wears it, they will get a yellow card. And that put these federations 
in a predicament? Because as much as we want to do this, do we want to penalize our individual players uh, to have this message? So they relented, and and FIFA said that you know they could only wear their anti-discrimination armband and that it has to be sanctioned. I was a bit disappointed, if I'm being honest, mm-hmm. that all of the federations decided, you know, at the last minute, despite the penalty being higher, because they thought it was just going to be a fine, a uniform violation, that they changed course. And here's why. Jordan, imagine, one, the power. If to start a match, you know, Harry Kane, captain of England, is shown a yellow card and, and he touches that armband. Imagine if you were at any part of the globe and you were part of the 2SLGBTQ community, how seen you you'd feel yeah how iconic that photo that would be the you know tommy smith john carlos photo of our era sure i mean it's a real it's taken a real penalty on the pitch to yes. show people that they matter yes and when you say this is bigger than the game like that's a, a chance to really show it and prove it and two even if you said the netherlands for example their captain is uh, Virgil van Dijk, he's a defender. You know, a yellow for a defender is a bit more precarious because, you know, one slip and it could be, you know, a second yellow or, uh, which meant being knocked out of that game. Or if you get another yellow in the group stages, a potential uh, suspension for a game down the road. Sure, you have five subs in, in international competition. Have a designated yellow card taker who takes the yellow, wears the armband, and then walks off the pitch. Hmm. And someone else is then the captain for the other 89 minutes plus extra time. Like There were ways to do this and prove a point and send a message that didn't have to hurt the team tactically. And if it did, so be it. It is one match of, of you know, hopefully for these nations, three, four, five. So, so I was a bit disappointed that none of the nations, although they put out a unified statement, none of them made a unified statement on the pitch. Yeah. And the most recent one is, you know, uh, first match of the second day, uh, the Iranian players uh, during the national anthem did not sing. The national anthem, and for those who haven't watched a World Cup, singing of the national anthems might be, you know, outside of penalty kicks, the most entertaining part of the broadcast because all of these players, all of these millionaires, are singing it with their hearts. Fans in the stands are crying. That's how much it means. Mm-hmm. And for those players to not sing it, theoretically, in support of the anti-government protests back home, which are happening because of the death of a 22-year-old woman who died while in custody of the country's morality police, that says something. I mean, we've already seen the Iran Football Federation make some statements. Star striker Sadar Hazmoun did not start versus England, but was named to the squad despite reported pressure from the government to leave him out because he supported the protests uh, before the tournament started, right on the eve of the tournament, the Iranian captain, Elsad Hajafi, uh, he was the first Iranian player um, who we knew was going to play, who was, you know, outright uh, in support of the anti-government protests. And now we've all seen them, you know, by not saying anything during the anthem, show some support. And on the flip side, in that very same match, the England Three Lions took a knee at the beginning of uh, the match. And that is something that they have done routinely 
post George Floyd's death, they haven't stopped it. While many other uh, you know sporting bodies and teams have, they have taken a knee before every match, and they continue to do so even though. FIFA sent a letter to all of the football federations before the tournament saying these games will not be political. Please do not use them as a platform for anything other than sport. Essentially saying, you know, shut up and dribble the soccer version. Mm-hmm. England still took a knee. So we saw in match one, day two, uh, that these games are political, uh, whether you like it or not. What do you expect from Team Canada? Is this their victory? Have they already won and this is just kind of a victory lap because this is the pinnacle for them? Well, the group says goal one is to get goal one. 36 years ago when Canada was in the World Cup, not only didn't win a game, didn't score a goal. So they want to give that first moment of celebration for the country. And it really struck me watching the England match. England scored six goals in their first match. but Every goal, when you cut to bars in London or Manchester or Liverpool, the scenes, if you saw them with no context, you would have thought they won the tournament. That's how people were celebrating. And so for Canadians, you know, for 30 plus million of us to have that moment, I think is goal one. Number two, and it's it's a real goal, is to get out of the group. You've got a Belgium side, which has been previously ranked number one in the world, is now ranked number two, that is aging. This golden generation is coming to an end. Still the best midfielder in the world, Kevin De Bruyne, plays for their team, but their star striker, Romelu Lukaku, is not going to play in the first two matches, which includes the first against Canada. So I think they have a real opportunity when you look at the second match in Croatia. Again, a a team that always uh, gets to the knockout stage, but is is aging. I think there is an opportunity to steal a a match, get a draw, get some points, and maybe get out of the group. But the first goal is to get, literally, uh, the first goal. And and they have, and we'll see, they have been pretty bullish about the fact that they're going, and John Herdman's the first to say it, not to be shy, not to be tepid, not to be happy to be invited. Not only are they going to go, they're going to go play. They're going to be on the front foot. They're going to be aggressive. They're going to take the game to the opponents. Now, that's one thing to say. It's now another thing to do it, especially when technically you're playing teams that are so good that you may never get the ball for you know a half. But I expected them to be pragmatic, to park the bus a little bit, to try to use their speed, which they have lots of team speed, uh, and they're one of the fastest teams in the tournament, and counter on the break and score some goals against the run of play, maybe smash and grab, get a 1-1 tie, or maybe a 1-0 victory. But they say that they're going to express themselves, play positive football, and have some fun. And so John Herdman's known for mind games, so we'll see. The real question is, who will be playing? Because, you know, whether it's the star goalie in Borjan or, you know, the star midfielder in Stephanie Stacchio, I think the most important player or their best player in Alfonso Davies, they have some injury concerns coming into the tournament. Hmm. I expect all three to start game one, but how many minutes will we see throughout will be a question. But Jordan, the fact that we're having these conversations about who is going to start, about what the tactics will be like. That in itself is a breath of fresh air for someone who's followed this program for a long time. And, you know, a lot of the time the conversation was, how are we losing uh, by multiple goals to Panama? Yeah. And, and now we're in the World Cup. Well, I wish the whole 25 minutes we just spent could have been about Canada and the World Cup and the pitch, but it's not. Donovan, thank you, as always, for digging so deep on this. My pleasure. 
Donovan Bennett of Sportsnet, the host of Going Deep, which if you enjoyed this conversation, you will also very much enjoy. Add it to your lineup wherever you get your podcasts. That was the big story. Canada's first game, by the way, at the World Cup will be against Belgium on Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. This was a fascinating discussion. If you are a Canadian soccer fan who has suffered through the lean years and you feel conflicted about this World Cup, or maybe you don't because all that matters is the game, we'd love to know how you feel about it. You can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can, of course, send us an email, hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. And you can call and leave us a message, 416-935-5935. The Big Story is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.